0: The rest of you, uh, we're going to be in uh, 2 Kings chapter 4 as well as 2 Kings chapter 6. So if you want to turn in your Bible there while you do that, just a few quick announcements about some things going on in the life of our church. Really quickly, if you are taking one of our Sunday evening development classes uh, due to the holiday, there are no classes tonight. So CBR class, um, uh, seeing Jesus together, that is not happening tonight. The covenant theology class is not happening tonight. Uh, Enjoy the holiday weekend with your family Uh, Get ready for the Peachtree Road Race for those of you who are crazy enough to get up and go ride Marta and run uphill for 6.2 miles tomorrow in the heat. uh, Get ready for that. Hydrate or put the noodles in your body or whatever you're doing. Um, Get ready for that. So feel free to take the night to end about no classes uh, this week. Lastly, also, uh, I believe uh, Jane and Kyle Morero are here uh, along with Lily. So if uh, you guys have missed them, they are here visiting this week. Uh, they um, were faithful members of our church for many years. All right, let's get to God's Word, 2 Kings chapter 4. We are in three sections. Whittle complained last week that I didn't read the sections uh, for him, and so I'm going to go ahead and call Whittle up to read the 45 verses I have to read this morning. Um, no, we're going we're to be all over the place. We're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're looking at a number of vignettes of stories of God's goodness and faithfulness, Uh, through the prophet Elijah. We're going to pick up in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, then we're going to drop down and read 38 through 44, and then jump over to chapter 6 and read the first seven verses over there as well. So follow along in your Bible, or it will be on the screen for you as I read out loud. Hear God's word. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. And you know that your servant feared the Lord, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elijah said to her, What shall I do for you? "'Tell me, what have you in the house?' And she said, "'Your servant has nothing in the house "'except a jar of oil.' And then he said, "'Go outside, "'borrow vessels from your neighbors, "'empty vessels and not too few, "'then go in and shut the door behind yourself "'and your sons and pour into all these vessels. "'When one is full, set it aside.' So she went from him and shut the door behind herself "'and her sons, and as she poured, "'they brought the vessels for her. "'And when the vessels were full, "'she said to her son, "'Bring me another vessel.' And he said to her, there is not another. And then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. I'll drop down to the end of chapter 4, verses 38 through 44. If you recall, Whittle preached on the the, the intervening uh, section there on the resurrection of the Shunammite's son. But we pick up in verses 44. And Elijah came to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the land, another one. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs, and found a wild vine, and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds, and came and cut them into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. If you're a Boy Scout, that's a no no, right? And they poured out some of the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, "O man of God, there is death in the pot!" And they could not eat it. It means it's poison, not that the the cook was bad. And he said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm anymore in the pots. Continuing on in verse 42, and a man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elijah said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says the Lord, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left according to the word of the Lord. One final vignette. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elijah, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I'll go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe had fell into the water, and he cried out, Alas, my master, it was borrowed. And then the man of God said, Well, where did it fall? When he showed him the place, he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float. And he said, Take it up. So he reached out his hand and took it. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. May the word of our God stand forever. What we have here is four miracles in three sections or passages in 2 Kings 4 and 2 Kings 6. We have, really quickly, an indebted widow whose sons are going to be taken to use sweat equity to pay off their father's debt. Then we have poison soup in in the midst of a a food scarcity issue for some young seminary students. That's who these young prophets were. They were sitting at the feet of Elijah learning about the, the faithfulness of God and of his laws And then lastly, these same seminary students are hoping to build a little bit of a a shelter, a place for them to have their seminary classes, and while they're building these buildings, one of them loses a piece of construction equipment. These are all miracles. If I throw a stick in the water, iron doesn't suddenly float. That is defying the natural order of things. If I take a tiny jar of oil and keep pouring it and pouring it and pouring it, Eventually, that oil will run out. It doesn't simply fill up large jars. These are all miracles. Miracles. Now, what are, what are miracles for? If you've spent many, much time in the church, or especially if you grew up in Sunday school, because we love to give great emphasis on the miracles of both the Old Testament and the New Testament that Jesus and the apostles performed, what in the world are miracles for? Now, very very plainly and very briefly, miracles are signs and pointers, They are not for themselves. If you see a road sign that says, I am a road sign, that road sign is not doing much for you. Miracles are there to tell us something. They're pointers to a truth about something. They're there signs pointing or confirming truths. For example, in Jesus, in John chapter 10, says that I perform miracles so that you will know that indeed what I am saying about myself is true, that I am the Son of God. So miracles are signs. They're supposed to tell us the truth. They're supposed to instruct us to give us guidance as to what is true. So, do roads. this is what road signs do as well. They tell us what is ahead. They instruct us. They tell us about our, our surroundings, and they, they tell us truthful things. At least that's what they're supposed to do. Now, some of you have maybe seen some road signs like this before, in which I find some of them rather to be interesting, right? We have some signs do this better than others. For example, this sign points you to a secret nuclear bunker, All right, that that seems rather, uh, you know, something you shouldn't know about if it's on a sign where there's secret nuclear bunkers. Or some signs, as we see here, some signs may be rather confusing. Am I supposed to protect the children or shoot the children? Or uh, some may be rather, uh, I mean, uh, graphic in their display. I mean, look at this one sign from Alaska. Apparently, they have very large mosquitoes in Alaska, larger than humans, and they're able to carry you off. And then some are just downright offensive. I mean, look at the size of that person. <laughs> heavy, heavy pedestrian traffic. And then some signs are simply just absolutely necessary for life. <laughs> this is a real legitimate sign found outside a nudist beach. Miracles are signs. They're supposed to point you to the truth and instruct you in life. And in particular when God's prophets do signs they are confirming either their ministry or most specifically when God does miracles he is saying something about himself about himself And they are truthful things and they are graphic examples of who he is and so what do these four miracles say about your God These four these three stories and four vignettes of miracles we're look at them briefly each in their, in their order. First, let's look at each of these. God cares for significant people. This is what the miracles first tell us. Across all four, this is one of the principles that we would see, that God cares for insignificant people. What's interesting is the context of the, each, each of these stories, before and after these little vignettes. These are little snapshots of miracles, but what surrounds them Are activities by Elisha and mere other miracles in which grand things happen. For example, in 2 Kings chapter 3, right there preceding chapter 4, we're not gonna look at 2 Kings chapter 3. But what we have in 2 Kings chapter 3 is we have Elijah engaging in national and geopolitical matters. Enormous issues for the people of Israel. The implications are huge. The issues are public and the ramifications of him intervening in the situation in chapter 3 are massive. He's dealing with kings and queens. And then we turn the page to chapter 4. And suddenly we find ourselves immersed in the indebtedness of a nameless widow and her two boys. Yes, their situation is dire. Yes, their situation is grievous. But their situation is of no great national importance. Everything about the story is actually rather small and hidden. Even the miracle is done behind closed doors. In much the same way, the story we're going to look at next week in chapter 5, precedes our story in chapter 6 that we looked at this morning. In chapter 5, we have this great miracle done for a man named Naaman, who's a lead general for the Assyrian army. He's a man of incredible power and importance, and if Elijah takes care of him, it actually has incredible national significance in helping Israel and not being defeated by the Assyrian army, because now they have a general who is a follower of Yahweh. So we have great, a great miracle that happens for a great man, and so everyone could say, oh, look, Here it is, a a general starts to follow Yahweh, and so in the Christian tabloids, suddenly we can write, God's working in the highest places of power. And then we get to chapter six, and we see a little story about a singular seminary student having his axe head float to the surface. Does God care in the midst of pandemics and a gas crisis and a war in Europe, does he care about the needs of a poor seminary student and the indebtedness of a widow? Some of you know, know the name of Sam Rayburn. Sam Rayburn is the, the longest standing uh, House of Rep- Representatives, a majority leader uh, from in 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 he was over in, in served in the House of Representatives for 24 terms. A man of incredible clout and importance. He served many presidents. But there was a particular story of him from the 1960s in which a man who he knew um, who was a reporter, uh, a Capitol Hill Beat reporter, suddenly lost his teenage daughter. And Sam Rayburn heard about it. And the, the, the next morning after this, this daughter's passing, he went, found out where this reporter lived and went to his apartment and he knocked on the door. And the reporter opened the door and said, Mr. Speaker, what are you doing here? And Sam Rayburn said, I just came by to see if there was anything I could do to help. And the reporter said, I don't think so. We're just trying to make arrangements for the service. Rayburn said, Well, have you had your morning coffee? The reporter said, Well, no, we've been too busy making the arrangements. We've been so muddled that we haven't taken the time to make coffee yet. And Rayburn said, Well, at least let me come in and make your coffee. And Rayburn walked past the man, and went into the kitchen, started getting the things together to make a simple cup of coffee. Now, while he was doing this, the reporter, stunned by the fact that Sam Rayburn would come and show this kindness to him to begin with, the reporter remembered Sam Rayburn's usual schedule. And he said, Mr. Rayburn, aren't you supposed to be having breakfast at the White House with the president this morning? Rayburn said, well, yes, I am. But I called the president and told him that I had a friend who was in trouble, and so I couldn't come. This is a small, small taste of the type of God you have. In Isaiah 66, verse 1, it says that God, he reigns from the heavens and the earth is his footstool. That you have a God who is involved in the largest significant issues in the world. He is the one who oversees the geopolitical movings and shakings. He is the God who is doing battle over the darkness of the worst evils and principalities in this world. And yet he also cares about your farm equipment. And he cares about your credit card debt. This is the Yahweh who cares about the most insignificant people and their specific times of need. This is the God that you are called to serve. And in fact, fact, what's interesting here is he uses our tattered need and our very place of insignificance of showing his greatness. And the type of character that he has. For example, in chapter three, the king of Israel has to plead for Elijah to help. And Elijah comes to him and says, Listen, I'm gonna help you, but I don't really want to. And then we get to chapter four, and we have a young, a little widow who pleads for help as well, and Elijah jumps at the chance because this is the type of God that we have. It's as if her insignificance and her smallness are actually the things that attract God to her side. So do not fear, little ones, and insignificant ones carrying out mundane jobs and day-in and day-out careers, teaching for 40 years in a little place called Carrollton. Your God cares, and you are significant in his eyes. This is the kind of God that you have. Second, what else does God want us to know about him from these miracles? The second thing we can see that runs across all four of these is that God provides for practical needs. God provides for the most simplistic and practical of needs. You know, we, we, we have some expectations for God's miracles, right? I mean, they're supposed to have some pizzazz to them. I mean, people need to be... If God is going to do a show up and do some miracles, we need some thunder and some lightning, and there better be some dead, dead people getting raised from the ground. This is the kind of miracles we like, the kind of things that give us front-page news. They're supposed to be flashy, right? We got Lazarus. That's the kind of miracles that we want from God. And yet these miracles... There's something so, I mean, it's a miracle, but so very earthy about what God provides here in these. Look at each of the stories. We have an indebted widow. God helps a woman out of debt and helps her capitalize a small business. I mean, some of you have done that. You have helped widows and and helped capitalize small businesses. God provides safety and adequate food for a seminary class. I mean, that's nice. I mean, there's seminary students. I mean, they barely deserve it. But yeah, but that's it. It's just some meals. And then God fishes out some constructed equipment from a pond. What in the world is God doing, wasting his miracles on such mundane activity? These aren't even done in public half the time. And you say, well, that's interesting, but there's not much pizzazz here. I, you know, it's kind of one of those miracles. That's, it's like flyover miracles. You kind of look at it and you go, well, eh, that's nice. And you move on with your day. But the la da nature and the treatment of these miracles actually show us something that can be fairly plain to see. Almost all of God's miraculous signs in the Bible, whether they make front page news or not, are signs where God provides for the practical needs of his people. So yes, we love resurrection stories, but think about resurrection stories. You cannot get more imminently practical than raising people from the dead. That is a rather practical matter. Now, there are some miracles in the Bible that we look at and we go, that doesn't seem all that practical, such as Gideon's fleece. I mean, Gideon's fleece, you're like, I, I don't see the practical idea over that, or Hezekiah's shadow being turned back. It's like, oh, that's nice. It's symbolic that Hezekiah is gonna get some more years. But most miracles actually serve an incredibly simplistic, earthy, and practical purpose for God's people. And that takes us back to the whole reason for miracles. The miracles tell us something. Not in the abstract, but in the reality. That is telling us that God is our provider. And that he can provide in every single circumstance. He is able to provide, not for just the big, grand needs, but he's able to provide for your needs. Like your simple, small, practical, mundane, earthy needs. Like a used car or a good tutor for your child. And isn't that great because that is where you and I live on a day in and day out basis. Our questions about God do not revolve around whether he can create a rock that is too big for him to lift. Our questions do not revolve about how many stars God can juggle. Our questions about God revolve around our earthy needs like this. God, will you provide for my daily bread? Will you help me make it one more day with my special needs childs? Will you provide the money that we need to send our child to college? Miracles are God's gracious provision from time to time for a people great in suffering or weak in faith to get a reminder in bold and in neon that he is the provider of our daily needs. Miracles are God's provision of daily bread and neon lights, but the earthiness and the practicality of miracles are simply God taking what is always true about him and underlining it and putting it in bold or italics and highlighting it with his bright yellow highlighter. And what is the truth that they are trying to communicate? That our God is the true provider. That our God is the true provider. Just think about this. God could have provided in each of these situations without the miraculous component, right? A wealthy benefactor could have shown up to pay the debt and provide the resources of this woman. Right, we see that in other places in the Bible, God provides through Ruth for Ruth, not through anything miraculous, but through Boaz. Well, we have other places. David and his men desperately need food. God does not provide to them through miracles. He provides a disgruntled wife and her abusive husband, a wife, a woman named Abigail, who comes out and provides food for David and his men. There is something to this that shows us what miracles are for. God most often provides for us through His daily providences like a job, or the kindness of a, of a neighbor, or the generation of a wealth, generousness of a wealthy patron. nothing miraculous to see there, but they are no less from the hand of God in His provision than the miracles that we find in Scripture. Yahweh may decide to feed his people with daily manna from heaven. Or feed 6,000 with a few loaves and fish. Or he may provide for his people via a well-stocked grocery store and a faithful job. But both, both are from his hands. You see, do you see the practical vision of God in your life? That he is there? And that the miracles there is to just simply put it in bold in front of you what is always true, that God is your provider. Or are you looking to the skies for lightning bolts from heaven? Max Lucado said this, because we look for the bonfire, we miss the thousand candles. And because we are listening for the shout, we miss the whisper. The miracles of God are simply trying to point us back to who he always is. Remember, they're signs. They're signs telling us the truth. This is your God. One additional point here on this. You know, it's indeed very, it's at the very place of our greatest need that God delights to use. It's actually at your limitations that God uses See, let me give you an exegetical illustration, kind of looking at the the nuances of some of the language of just one of the stories. We'll look at the story of the widow. There's a small but interesting note here that if we look at the language, she says, I have nothing in the house except for a little jar of oil. Mentioning the jar of oil was not her saying, well, I have nothing, but I do have this jar of oil. No, mentioning the jar of oil was highlighting what she does not have. It was saying, I got nothing. I mean, all I have is cobwebs in the corner. I have a few crumbs. That's all I've got. Mention the jar of oil was there to highlight what she did not have. And God says, aha, there, at that place, at this place where you symbolize as being a representative of your great need, it's in that place that I will display my care. And what we see in verses 3 through 6 is quite interesting. We have six uses, a redundancy of uses, of the word container or vessel. There's no need to use it six times. But the word there is in direct contrast to what she describes what she has. She says, I have a tiny flask is the word. It's like the size of a perfume jar is what she has. And yet the word for vessel or container is something large. And God is saying, I will take that which is tiny, that which is symbolic of your neediness, and I will turn it into something that displays my great provision. And isn't this what Jesus does when he shows up too? Just think about Mark chapter 6 where Jesus feeds the 5,000. He doesn't say, hey, disciples, you got enough bread? No. They say, he says, how many loaves you got? And what do they say? Not enough. And he says, I like that spot. I like that place because God is able to put, to begin at the very place of our greatest sense of neediness and destitution he begins with our insignificance and our want and he says i'll begin with your helplessness and at your inability to contribute anything to the mix and i will do something great to provide for you so let me ask you this where is your place of greatest need those with eyes to see, those who will follow the pointer of his miracles will look with a heart of faith and get really curious and really trustworthy about what God might do in that very place. And that place of weakness, what are you doing there? In the place that most symbolizes my weakness and my neediness in this world. Now, a question that we may ask and that often people misuse the scripture's is they look at miracles, particularly the ones in Acts, but in other places as well, and they go, now listen, look at this. This is what you're promised. You're promised that if you will just believe well enough and have a good enough faith, that God will provide in miraculous ways where you need food. Are these miracles here to tell us that God will deliver you from whatever situation? That when you only have a few loaves of bread and a few fishes, that he can serve the whole church with it? Is that what he's trying to say? Are these miracles normative for believers today? Well, the answer is no, but they are meant to tell us about the kind of God that we have, and that no matter the circumstances, He is able to provide. For example, let me. In other words, there's there's a principle that we're supposed to take out of each of these miracles. Let me show you from another place from Jesus' ministry. In Mark chapter 6, I've mentioned it already. It's where Jesus feeds the 5,000 with a few loaves and a few fish. In Mark chapter 6, he feeds the disciples and feeds all these thousands of people. Then they leave the scene. The disciples get on a boat and they're sailing across the Sea of Galilee. Jesus doesn't go with them, he decides to go on a walk. Now the disciples come across a terrible storm and they're unbelievably afraid. They are terrified, and Jesus is not with them. And they begin to cry out, and suddenly Jesus walks across the water, gets in the boat, and stills the storm. And it says this, that they looked at him with astonishment. They couldn't believe it. They couldn't believe what Jesus did, just did. They couldn't believe that he could walk on water, and that he could still a storm. And then it says this in my, chapter, chapter 6, verse 52 of Mark. The reason why they were astounded is for they did not understand about the loaves. In other words, what is he trying to say? In other words, they saw the miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000 people, but they didn't believe that Jesus was strong enough to protect them from the storm. In other words, you are not promised miracles, but you're promised to have the miracle maker. And they didn't get the principle If he can provide in that place, over there, then surely whatever storm and place of need I'm in, he can provide over here as well. And therefore, the principle and the point of God's miracles is we look at them and we say, listen, I am not provided, maybe in the same way. I am not promised, I am not promised miracles in my life, but I am given something better. I am given the miracle maker in the boat of my life, that that's what I get, and if Jesus is sufficient to provide bread for 5,000 people then he can provide in the storms of my life. He can provide in all the circumstances, in the big, in the small, in the public, in the private ways, through miraculous things and through simply his daily providences. Ultimately, he is the one in whom I trust. That is the point of miracles. And this leads us to our last point. Miracles show us that God cares for the smallest, And the most insignificant, that God cares and provides for our most practical needs. And lastly, miracles show us that God calls calls future generations to Himself. Now, here we need to do a little bit of literary work to help you understand the context of what I'm trying to say here. There are common characters, if you noticed it, in each of these stories. All three of the passages, the same characters, or same common characters. They're all under the title The Sons of the Prophets. Now, remember that Elijah is a, is, a, is a prophet 2.0. There was Elijah who came with this prophetic voice, and there was those, the, the few, the 7,000 or so, that followed him. And then the, that faithful remnant had sons and daughters, and this is their children. Look at chapter 4, verses 1. Now, the wife of one of the sons of the daughters, of sons of the prophets, cried to Elijah. Chapter 4, 38. And Elijah came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, and 2 Kings 6, 1. Now, the sons of the prophets said to Elijah. Each of these stories are about God's provision to the next generation. And what is their context? The next generation, just like the generation before them, is a generation living in a corrupt land with evil rulers, and yet they are seeking to be faithful in the land of Israel. Now hold that thought about the, 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 common, the, the common characters of the story, and now let's go to who the original audience was for the book of Kings. Who was the original audience for, for the book of First and Second Kings? First and Second Kings was not completed until probably around 560 B.C., which was when Judah was already taken captive in Babylon. In other words, it is a book to enslaved people. These are a people who have been taken from home, a people living essentially as impoverished slaves. They would be seen as small, insignificant remnants of those seeking to live faithfully faithfully in a God-hating land, wondering if God remembers them at all and if he will provide for them. And First and Second Kings has been God's explanation via the prophets to them as saying, here's why you're enslaved, because your forefathers apostatized and ran after other gods, and they trusted their own wealth and their own power instead of trusting in me. But then in the midst of these stories, speaking with, of generation after generation of Israel's apostasy and saying, this is why you're in slavery, this is why you're in slavery, God now suddenly shifts the story with Elijah, and we have these miracles of God's vision showing that this is what God does to those who are faithful for him. In other words, you see these stories are saying, Israel, this is the God who is available to you even while you're in this lowly place of slavery and insignificance. Even while you have desperate daily needs, this is the God who is available to you. See how faithful he is to each generation, to those who serve him and fear him. And isn't he trustworthy? Isn't he a God who is worth looking at for your daily bread? And with that declaration of who God is, comes the call to each generation. The generation that originally receives First and Second Kings lived 300 years after the original characters. And yet God is saying that just as I was faithful to Elijah's generation and just as I was faithful to the next generation under Elisha, to those who fear me, yes, even in slavery and in insignificance, this is how I provide for my people. This is your God. Isn't he good? And isn't he worthy of your trust? I'm going to use an illustration from someone who I have severe disagreements from, with. A man who loved Jesus, but gave his life serving an an evil cause. But not all the causes he served were evil. One day, Stonewall Jackson, his world caved in. His infant son and his wife died on the same day. He wrote his sister Laura, who did not believe in the Lord, and she was at best agnostic about the things of Jesus. But he wrote her about his sad news. He said this My dearest Ellie breathed her last on Sunday evening, the same day in which the child was born dead. Oh, the consolations of religion. I can willingly submit to anything if God strengthens me. And then he turns to his sister in the letter Oh, my sister, that you could have him for your God. Though all nature to me is eclipsed, yet I have joy in knowing that God withholds no good things from them that love and keep his commands. Do you hear the appeal? Oh yes, even in sorrow and disaster, yet God provides even here. He is the joy of my heart for those that trust him. And then he looks at her and he says, would that you have this God as your God. So that when, when life buffets you, when you feel crushed by your circumstances, when you're in sorrow and suffering and feel forgotten, that if you have this God, you know you're not forgotten and that he will be the one who will provide for you. And that is what the prophet Elijah and what the writers of First and Second Kings are offering to an enslaved nation. God is faithful to provide for the next generation. And so let me look at you. Those of you that are teenagers and college students and 20-somethings who are having to make your decision, will you remain faithful in a corrupt and perverted generation? Will you look to him in faith, knowing that he will provide? Will you be a faithful remnant, in other words? That's what First and Second Kings and these miracles are pointing to you. Here's the call to repent from looking at your own means and trusting your own ability to provide for yourself and instead look to the God who has proven that he is willing and able generation after generation to provide for his people will you trust him or will you trust the way of the world will you trust him or will you trust your own way of doing things for those who follow God, he has always declared and promised that he will be the faithful one. Here's what he said in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 9. Know therefore that the Lord your God is faithful, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to what? A thousand generations. And to each generation it is this call. Will you see the great works of God and know That is the God, that is the God that is worthy of serving. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would remind us, remind us that you're the faithful God, whether it be from the the text of your word in which you display through your mighty acts that we could see here's the character of our God. Or the day in and day out simple providences in which you provide for our daily needs. God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see that you are the God who provides. That Lord, when we find that we are in a place of hiddenness and insignificance and neediness, that we would know that in that moment we are smack dab in the bullseye of God's tractor beam. And that he will come running after us. And so, Lord, would you give us the strength to remember what you have done and to run after you time in and time out, trusting in your faithfulness. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.